Hey, it's Meg Dalton, and this is The Kicker, a podcast about all things journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. So I'm really excited about today's guest, Koa Beck. She's the new editor-in-chief of Jezebel, one of my go-to news sources for the last 10 years. We talked about everything from why she made the move to Jezebel to the media's coverage of sexual harassment in recent weeks. Then my awesome colleagues Christy Chisholm and Pete Vernon will join me in the studio to talk about the fallout surrounding harassment allegations at WNYC, plus ABC News's big error on the Michael Flynn story and MSNBC's mishandling of the Sam Sater tweets. But first, here's my chat with Koa Beck. You just started as the editor-in-chief of Jezebel last month. Um, So how did you come to assume the role, and what were you doing beforehand? Before I was approached about the role of EIC, uh, I was, in fact, working on a novel. Um, I had been the executive editor of Vogue.com and had uh, stepped down from the position in June to focus on some book projects. Uh, There's also been some interest based on some reporting I did a couple years ago. So I spent my summer knee-deep in drafts and manuscripts uh, with the intention of really focusing on those. And then GMG approached me about the role. And so what made you want to want to take the role on? Because it's Jezebel. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I uh, feel like I owe a tremendous amount of my career to Jezebel, especially because I was such an avid reader at such a formative age, both just in terms of my life, but also my career. I started reading Jezebel in my early 20s, fresh from a women's college, having just come to New York. And one of the big disconnects I encountered as somebody who wanted to write and wanted to work in media, wanted to report in addition to being a fiction writer, was that a lot of the concepts, systemic oppression, gender theories that I had learned about um, in this very cloistered, idyllic uh, women's college atmosphere, when I actually stepped out as an adult into the landscape of media, women's media was not covering or addressing in any significant way. Uh, Jezebel, I came to very naturally looking for an outlet that would talk about rape culture in a way that I understood and felt um, more urgent. Uh, Politics, uh, I really credit Jezebel with putting that formula together very early, which in turn I feel like made my career in women's media possible in that I've worked at Vogue and I've worked at Mary Claire and I've worked at a number of outlets where I've been able to report on and contribute significantly on these topics. And these outlets have absolutely taken a page from Jezebel. And this is, you know, obviously a pretty interesting and critical moment to be at a place like Jezebel. A lot of the major stories in in recent weeks you know, about powerful men and sexual harassment, whether it's Weinstein or Kevin Spacey, had their origins on Jezebel. And so, you know, when mainstream traditional outlets wouldn't touch these stories about rape culture and harassment, like you mentioned, Jezebel did. So I'm really curious about, you know, the influence of the website on this present moment and also on the larger cultural conversation happening, you know, right now. 
Jezebel's just arrival to this issue, I feel like cannot be understated. One of the really gratifying things I've been experiencing being new in the chair is in this climate where survivors are being believed and white men are losing their jobs and professional standing, I'm seeing Jezebel reporting from five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, recirculating on Twitter. Um, we're seeing traffic from reporting that Jezebel alumni did uh, several years ago. And it's really, really gratifying, especially because for large swaths of the internet, they remember. They remember reading those allegations first on Jezebel. And this is also, you know, a time where there's been this internal reckoning within our own industries. What do you think or hope will be the impact of the reporting on sexual harassment within our own industry? Do you think that there will be a significant shift in the industry as a result, whether that's, you know, in newsroom culture or structure? Well, I know that as far as the landscape of our industry goes, one of the most challenging aspects for women uh, in newsrooms, in features desks, is that when the Harvey Weinstein allegations broke, you had a lot of women reporting or aggregating content or scrambling to work on pieces of their own and literally filing those pieces to the man who has abused them in their own work setting. So consider for a second the dynamic that that woman is in. Um, and then you have uh, prominent men within media who are doing a lot of grandstanding on Twitter about the Harvey allegations. So I think uh, media and film, if those are the two industries we're talking about in this moment have a lot of significant parallels in that we are privy to a lot, um, particularly as uh, female non-binary reporters. And yet, even though we have that access and we have these huge platforms, there's sort of a guardianship in what we're expected and allowed to say. So I think that what I'm really seeing and will continue to see within media is that it's a systemic problem. It's not isolated to one outlet or one person. A, a lot of these predators have had uh, significant systems with which they've used to abuse people. So I think that a lot of outlets will continue to be affected. I feel like it needs to happen. Um, I hate to borrow uh, Trump term terminology, but drain the swamp. This moment has been, you know, pretty taxing and exhausting, you know, consuming story after story about the abuses of these powerful men. Do you think there's a fear of like fatigue with all of this coverage? And if so, like what, what are the consequences of that? Definitely. I've been very open with my staff about my fears about reader fatigue um, in that all of these moments and all these allegations absolutely should be logged and registered. I've shifted strategies for the team in terms of uh, how we approach stories and where stories live on the site. Um, we have two running updating lists right now of post-Weinstein allegations. It's constantly updated. We re-social it all the time. And there are key moments with certain stories, certain victims, certain predators with which we devote considerable more resources to on the site. That's keeping reader fatigue in mind and that my biggest fear is that people will start to glaze over, will lose momentum, 
people won't care anymore. And I do see that as a larger responsibility as someone running this outlet. Uh, on the second hand, I also have to take into consideration my staff and their well-being. Um, I have around 20 people on staff right now. Statistically, that means a number of them have been impacted by this sort of violence. And I do consider that as a, as a woman running Jezebel in that being in front of these allegations every day ad nauseum that are very graphic it could potentially hurt them, exhaust them, and and understandably deplete them. Um, so I've shifted things around so that people take breaks, can have a little bit of distance, and actually report with more vigor. So kind of like a, a self-care mechanism is, you know, being put in place in the Jezebel newsroom. Definitely. And I also, when I started... Um, Around the time I was being quartered for this position, uh, the Weinstein allegations broke in the New York Times. I came on board about a month later, so the staff had already been really treading tremendous water in keeping up with these. When I started, I mandated uh, personal days for everyone on staff. That's amazing. And I think that's something that's probably not maybe being done in larger, more traditional newsrooms. I, I agree, and also I, I think one thing that really needs to be said, specifically with Jezebel's legacy, is that Jezebel has been covering these issues for a long, long time. And so even though a lot of other outlets are keen now to believe survivors, to account for them in their reporting, to make difficult calls, the women on my staff have been doing this so, so long, and I feel like I have to account for that within approaching this news cycle. Yeah, and you kind of just you know hinted at this, but you know Jezebel previously filled a void. You know other places wouldn't or couldn't touch upon these issues, but now they are. So I'm curious about how you see Jezebel's role at a time when places like the New York Times are finally tackling these topics and also expanding their coverage of gender and women's issues. Like, how does Jezebel fit into this changing landscape of the media at large? I think uh, Jezebel's influence on media and not just women's media is unprecedented. Um, the fact that women's media, which I came up through through the latter end of my career, couldn't even necessarily be relevant without taking a page from um, Jezebel's editorial strategy, I think speaks for itself and says a lot. As far as where Jezebel will be going in its next iteration, I absolutely plan to take conversations farther than I think a lot of our competitors would. Uh, one of my big plans for 2018 is that I want to recontextualize women's issues, quote unquote, uh, which is a very limited umbrella, along a spectrum of gender. I don't see at this point a lot of our competitors, women's media or not, really doing that in a coherent, accessible, and often boundary-pushing way. I think Jezebel, given its history and legacy of topics, is uniquely poised to do this, more so than I think any other outlet. Having said that, I do know Jessica Bennett, the gender editor over at the New York Times, uh, and I think they were very smart in hiring her. I feel like her role will do wonderful things for the paper. She has also said on the record that she is hoping that uh, her work there will basically put her out of a job <laughs> um, and that she will influence editors and reporters in such a way that they won't necessarily need a gender editor anymore because they will be so literate on gender without her. 
so this year also marks the 10th anniversary of Jezebel, which is, you know, pretty great. Congratulations. Happy birthday. So I'm, I'm just wondering, like, kind of broadly, how you've seen it evolved since those early days. And you kind of touched upon this already, but where do you see it going now? Gender is a landscape I want to tackle much more aggressively. I still want to cover women's issues, but I want to contextualize them, I think, more importantly. Um, One of the examples I'm currently using for the staff in changes I'm making to the style guide, um, tweaking our editorial scope, is that you don't necessarily have to identify as a woman to have your abortion rights now compromised in this country. I don't see enough conversation about that, especially considering that a wealth of statistical reporting says again and again that uh, people, you know, 10 years younger than me, even more so than that, don't necessarily believe in a gender binary. Um, And yet this is a generation of marginalized genders who is going to grow up and need abortion access, is going to need a conversation around birth control, is going to need a conversation around sexual harassment. And again, I see a lot of our competitors speaking to a a very cis woman audience, and I feel like that's outdated. Um, As far as where Jezebel's been, I mean, I have seen Jezebel grow up because, frankly, I grew up with Jezebel. (laughs) Um, And seeing the way that they completely uh, changed media as a very young woman um, was very, very, very formative to me. And I think that going forward, I also plan to throw considerable more weight around investigative reporting, feature reporting, news, especially now as we're seeing in this climate, is important, but I will be working on more longer lead things and putting more of a priority there. Another topic that I really want to prioritize in the next 10 years, and particularly under a Trump administration, is that I want to explicitly frame immigration as a feminist issue. I feel like in this climate where you have Trump as a president and you have white nationalists feeling very out and proud, you can't talk about immigration in this country without stumbling upon at least five feminist tentpole issues, whether it's wage gap, discrimination, abortion access, um, sexual harassment. And so I plan to account for that very heavily on the site. All right, now I am joined in the studio with my two wonderful colleagues, Christy Chisholm and Pete Vernon. Welcome back to the studio. Thanks for having us. Great to be back. Great to be on this side of the mic. (laughs) Yeah, the tables have turned. And the reason why the tables have turned this week is because of the topic we're going to address first. If you haven't been following uh, the news this week about WNYC, here is a quick rundown. Earlier this week, it was reported in New York Magazine's The Cut by reporter Suki Kim that John Hockenberry was accused of various sexual harassment and harassment of a non-sexual nature uh, during his tenure at The Takeaway on WNYC. And since then, there's been a lot of fallout surrounding the way that WNYC's management, specifically uh, Laura Walker, who is the head of New York Public Radio, which encapsulates WNYC. Then it was reported that Leonard Lopate and Jonathan Schwartz, two other male hosts at WNYC, are on leave pending investigations into allegations surrounding both of them. Yeah, and this follows last month's news that NPR had lost two of its top newsroom leaders after reports of sexual harassment. Michael Oreskes, the senior VP of news and editorial and a former CJR board member, 
and David Sweeney, one of their top news editors, were both removed from the newsroom after these allegations. So it seems like for public media who relies on support from their audience, that this is an issue. And it's one that reporters at these places have done a good job exposing, but management has perhaps not handled so well. I think that the biggest kind of takeaway, no pun intended, um, (laughs) from both the WNYC and NPR handling of sexual harassment allegations is the disconnect between the editorial side of the company and the management leadership side of the company. I think in both cases at WNYC and NPR, the reporters and producers there have done an outstanding job covering the controversy within their own newsrooms. However, the management and leadership at the companies, both uh, Jay Moore at NPR and Laura Walker at WNYC, have not done a great job in terms of responding to sexual harassment allegations, both now, but also over the course of, you know, the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I just think that there's a huge, I mean, there's clearly a huge disconnect between management and editorial at a lot of newsrooms. Like, this is all coming out in public radio right now, but this is in newsrooms across the board. And I think that it puts um, extra pressure not just on senior management in newsrooms, but also on reporters to really look inward and to ask themselves if they know what's happening with their own organizations and to ask them and to ask their editors and managers how much transparency really exists there. For, at WNYC, uh, the reporters and hosts have been doing a really great job covering this internally. I mean, so many women, both producers, reporters, both former and current, have spoken out both on WNYC um, itself as well as in other media outlets like New York Magazine's The Cut, um, and other places. And it's incredibly brave to do that. And I just want to applaud all of them for the courageous work that they're doing, um, as well as the various programs like The Brian Lair Show, you know, Death, Sex and Money with Anna Sale. And even The Takeaway has taken this on under their, I guess, interim host, Todd Zwilich. I think it's worth recognizing that in this period in which we're examining our own industry, in which we've seen some of the biggest names in media reported on and lose their jobs, that it's often other outlets reporting on companies. So it was the Washington Post that broke the NPR story about Michael Oreskes. It was New York Magazine that broke the story about John Hockenberry at WMYC. But after those initial stories were reported on, NPR and WMYC have both done a really good job following up and reporting on their own newsrooms. Well, I guess despite the intentions of the editorial side of both the NPR and WNYC newsrooms, there's been a lot of backlash from listeners. The Brian Lehrer Show is a call-in show, and they had a specific call-in hour the other night um, where listeners were able to express how they were feeling about the situation. And a lot of them were really distraught, especially because they you know, both support in terms of listen, but also support in terms of financial donations and public media very much heavily relies on public funding, and a lot of people are questioning their decision to fund in the light of all of these sexual harassment allegations. So it's a, it's a really interesting time. This, this is like one of the first instances I think we're seeing where listeners, readers, et cetera, can really hold the news organization accountable um, because they have such a direct connection financially to the company. Um, and for anyone who's interested in expressing how they're feeling about WNYC, um, they're having their a public board meeting next Thursday, December 14th. There's more information on, I think, WNYC's website. For anyone interested in vocalizing their 
feelings or concerns about the way that the situation was handled or rather mishandled by New York Public Radio leadership, uh, you should definitely go check it out and uh, I'll be there. And I think it's a really important way to hold management more accountable and to demand transparency about where your money is going, but also how they're going to respond to these allegations moving forward. And another big story that we've been following at CJR2 is the fallout surrounding ABC News's report on Michael Flynn over the weekend. Um, Pete, what happened there? Yeah, I know this feels like months ago, but last Friday, the news broke that Michael Flynn would plead guilty to one count brought by the Mueller investigation and that he was cooperating with the investigation in order to avoid other charges. ABC's Brian Ross quickly went to air and dropped a bombshell report. He basically said that Flynn was prepared to testify that Trump had directed him to get in contact with Russian officials during the campaign. That would obviously be a big deal, implying collusion in order to win a presidential election, which would unleash a whole host of issues uh, for the Trump presidency. He later walked that back in what ABC News allowed to be called a clarification saying that, no, it wasn't during the campaign that Flynn was given that direction. It was during the transition when Trump was already president-elect. That then became a correction after ABC faced tons of backlash, right? This was a huge deal. And Brian Ross was suspended for four weeks without pay. ABC has been reeling from this news for the past week or so. This just brings up the danger of getting something wrong, especially in this charged political era. Yeah, every time something like that happens, it just is like further ammunition for those who don't trust the media and who want to say that the, you know, quote unquote, mainstream media is always biased against Trump. And, you know, and those people who actually believe that the media makes up stuff to support our own beliefs when anyway. So obviously anyone who works in the media knows that that is absolutely false. But anytime we get something wrong like this or you like a small detail, what seems like a small detail about exactly when an order was given in this case can have huge ramifications, not just for that individual reporter and for that individual story, but also for the industry as a whole and the way that audiences trust or distrust us. Yeah, it just kind of confirms for me that there's really no room for error under you know Trump as journalists, or at least it feels that way. And the narrative already pegs us as fake news. So when we misreport something or don't get the facts straight, it just confirms that for people who already distrust the media. Yeah, and the reality is this will happen again. Journalists are always rushing to get a story. They're often relying on anonymous sources, especially when reporting on Washington. And ABC deserves the criticism that they're getting for this. They went to air with a story that was a bombshell, if true, that turned out not to be true. So I do think they deserve the criticism they're getting. Certainly, there are people who will take this and use it in bad faith as an excuse to deflect other coverage that is grounded in reality. And I worry that the Trump White House will attempt, in the way that they did on a much less important story, the report that he had removed the bust of Martin Luther King from the White House soon after the inauguration. They got tons of mileage out of that in a tweet from Zeke Miller, then with Time, now now with the Associated Press, that was quickly corrected. I just, I'm concerned that it will become a talking point as opposed to a very real lesson in making sure that you get it right before worrying about getting it first. 
another you know network that hasn't quite been getting it right this week was MSNBC. For those people that are not as in tuned to the broadcast drama as we are, there was a a tweet that Sam Sater, one of their contributors, uh, sent out years ago that resurfaced after internet troll Mike Cernovich brought it to the attention of MSNBC executives. Pete, what is going on at MSNBC right now? Yeah, it's worth backing up and giving a little bit of context for this. Uh, Sam Sater had sent out a tweet satirizing Roman Polanski apologists um, several years ago. And Cernovich dug this up and presented without context. The tweet does sound bad. Uh, Cernovich basically put this on blast on Twitter, called on his followers to go to NBC, complain about it. Um, Sam Sater's contract was not renewed. And I think the bigger issue here is one in which mainstream media organizations are just not prepared to deal with their new media antagonists. Yeah, it seems like MSNBC is like af- afraid of Mike Cernovich. And, and his that, followers. And, and, that- and like their response to this is out of fear and not out of reason. Because a reasonable person would understand the intent and the meaning of the tweet versus the words themselves. We saw this lack of preparedness from a mainstream network with Cernovich specifically earlier this year when he was interviewed by Scott Pelley for 60 Minutes. And Cernovich basically was prepared for a battle. Pelley was not. And it really came off making Cernovich seem legitimate in ways that he wants to be viewed. And it's even more muddy because he does occasionally have scoops and he has sources within the administration. So we've talked about before just the difficulty of dealing with these new media figures. And it's something mainstream outlets are obviously still struggling with. Sure. It makes me think about Alex Jones and the whole Megyn Kelly debacle. And just like, you know, I I think that we're still clearly struggling with like how to understand, you know, we want to understand these cultural swells that are happening across the country. But how do we do that without giving an undue spotlight or attention or like lip service to these people who end up being complete trolls? Like, yeah. And and unintentionally kind of pegging them as the voice of reason in an unreasonable situation. It's like people try so hard to not appear to be biased or journalists appear or or try so hard to not appear biased. You know, like they don't want to write about Alex Jones like he's just a conspiracy theorist because then those who actually even though he is because then those who watch him or listen to him are going to think that they're biased already. So they're trying to take as neutral an approach as they can. And by doing that, they go the opposite direction and they give way too much credit and credence to these people who have an incredibly damaging effect on their audience and on like American culture in general. Yeah, I think the the moral of all of this is that we're playing catch up to some extent. And in 2017, not only is the news cycle spinning at an incredible rate, but the old rules just don't apply. That was our show. Thanks for listening to The Kicker this week. Thank you so much to my colleagues, Pete Vernon and Christy Chisholm, for being on the show, as well as Koa Beck, the new editor-in-chief of Jezebel. We have some really great content on CJR.org, and I recommend that you check it all out. And as my colleague Pete Vernon likes to say, thanks for kicking it with us. Nailed it.